Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we ask you to be with us as we jump into your word today, that you would just help to focus our hearts and minds on you and what you have come to accomplish. To not worry about how you, you make happen what you need to happen, but simply, Lord, to trust you in all that you do and look forward to the future glory that we can all look to when your son returns. Lord, we love you, and it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. So in October of 2015, uh, for the very first time, I met Liz, all right? And I didn't like meet her, meet her that day. I saw her from afar, uh, and I was a fan. Uh, And I I learned um, that she was also interested in me, so we started to date, and now we're married and all that stuff. Um, But before we got married, uh, I'm going to let you in on a little personal detail in our relationships. Don't get weirded out. Um, How many of you have ever heard of the, the five love languages? Yeah. Okay, it's a great book, all right? Lots of couples use it, um, and Liz and I both share one of those love languages, as I'm sure most of you probably do with your spouse, because uh, there's only five, but uh, we both share physical touch, all right? That's a big deal to us. Um, that's like hugs, kisses, holding hands, um, poking each other, tickling, whatever it is. Um, all that stuff is wrapped up in physical touch, and so we were figuring out how that worked in our relationship. Um, and, and I was going through a phase where, for whatever reason, I, I just like to tickle her, you know? It's fun. I like to see her jump, you know, uh, kind of have that, those moments there. She's not a fan. Uh, so, so she tried to tickle me. Uh, it's kind of like a go-back-and-forth type thing. So for months, you know, if I tried to start tickling her, she'd try to tickle me, I'd have the upper hand, she'd have the upper hand. It went back and forth. It was tons of fun. Uh, the problem is I'm not ticklish, uh, and she thought I was. Uh, for many months. Um, and she learned I wasn't ticklish um, because one day I got home, I was super irritated. She came over and was hanging out. Uh, and I, I don't know, I was doing something and I think she tried to tickle me and I did not react at all. all right, I didn't jump, I didn't move. Um, I, I think at one point I just looked over at her and said, I'm not ticklish, I was lying. And I went back to what I was doing. And, uh, and that's still a sore spot in our relationship. Uh, we we talked about it today. Um, so why am I telling you this? You know, why am I helping revisit this moment of frustration in Liz's life uh, and, and creating really fun conversations at home later? Um, the point is, sometimes the images we create in our minds um, that are based on different experiences uh, are not always accurate. The images we have that are based on these experiences should be well enough informed but are missing some sort of key component in, in, in what we need. For Liz, she was missing the, the truth, uh, that I was not ticklish. And so for her, when she discovered that, she was just pretty upset, you know, maybe even devastated, but we're working through it. For other people in their lives, when they discover that the image they've created for themselves or the image they've created for, for this sort of belief system or the image they've created for a relationship doesn't turn out how they anticipated or how they wanted, they can also get angry. They can get devastated. They can try to run from it. In faith, so often we see people don't want to have to live their life in a certain way. They just want that that free gift of grace, but, you know, I'm going to go sleep with whoever I want. I'm going to go do whatever I want. I'm going to spend my money however I want. I'm going to live the life I want, and when it's all said and done, God, I'll come back and you you can use what's left. When the image that we have isn't what we expect, we can struggle to stick with that idea. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the different images of Christ. 
And for us, we're 2,000 years removed from the Israelites who were experiencing these images for the first time. Because the Israelites had the same passages that we're going to talk about for the next several weeks um, in the Old Testament. They had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. But when he got there, he wasn't what they expected. For us, we're 2,000 years removed, and so not only do we have these images that come to us from the Old Testament, we also have the images of the New Testament. We know the truth about what's going on, and so for us, it seems to all make sense. And yet still, there's so many people who doubt who Jesus is, who doubt what he came to do, who doubt the message that he's trying to bring. And so there's struggle there. And so as we dive in today, specifically, we're going to look at an image of Jesus that didn't quite live up to what everyone had hoped, and that we today often struggle with as well. And we'll be in Genesis chapter 3, and if you want to open your Bibles up, that'd be great. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. They're bright red and in front of you. But as we continue to go through this, I challenge you to try to read the stories for what they are and try to see what an Israelite would have seen. Try to see what someone who had who had never even heard of Jesus, was just looking forward to this abstract idea that was supposed to be coming and see what you see there. So Genesis chapter 3, and we're just going to look at the first 15 verses. But before we get into that, <clears throat> Genesis 3, third chapter of the first book, the first two chapters of Genesis are all about creation. Genesis 1 is a pretty, you know, High level, like, here's all the things God did, here's how awesome it was, all of it was very good. Genesis 2 is more of an in-depth look at what everything was, um, talking more about man uh, and everything that was going on there. But at the end of Genesis 1, God sums up all of his work in this verse right here. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Everything was good. You were good. I was good. Adam was good. Eve was good. Plants were good. Animals were good. Everything was good. What bug do you hate the most? doesn't matter. It was good. Everything was good. That's how God intended for it to be. But then in our reading today, the very first verse, we meet something that is not good. We meet the serpent, and clearly he's evil. His first line, as he's introduced here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, is, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You can just tell by the way that question is worded, this guy's a jerk. All right, this is the bully on the playground. This is the instigator in the classroom, instigator at work, whatever you want to think. This is not a good guy. So what happened going from very good to whatever this is? It's devious. It's deceitful. It's destructive. In Genesis 1.31, everything is good, and then this question that is coming up here is, is actually completely ignoring something else that God shared with Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, verse 17, which says, if you eat of this tree's fruit, you are sure to die. So the serpent is trying to usurp God's authority. He's trying to, to tell them that this right here, well, did God say any tree? You can't eat from any tree in the garden? He's up to something. But then he doubles down in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, where he says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, of all the good, this thing, this serpent popped out of nowhere. And Jesus gives his own image of the serpent in John chapter 8, where he says, he was a murderer from the beginning. He has never stood for truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever that liar speaks, he speaks according to his own nature, because he's a liar and the father of liars. 
So the question for right now, who is the serpent? Hopefully it's a softball. Hopefully you all know who the serpent is. If you don't, Revelation 12 gives us the answer here. Revelation 12 verse 9 says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So who is the serpent? No, Tafaris already had you all interact with him. Come on, you're warmed up. Who is the serpent? Y'all. Who is the serpent? Okay, fine. Today is just not a good day for y'all. That's totally fine. Who is the serpent? It's the devil. It's Satan, okay? It's the most evil being we've ever been introduced to. But how did he get to that point? How did he become evil? Because the serpent is known by, never, by many names, you know? We have the devil, which means slanderer. We have Satan, which means accuser. Jesus called him the evil one and the ruler of this world. The Pharisees, who rarely, if ever, agree with Jesus, agree with him in this way, that this is a problemed individual. They called him Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Paul calls him the god of this age and the prince of the power of the air. This is the character we meet in Genesis chapter 3 the third section of the first book, and he's already evil. He's already a liar. He's already a murderer when he first appears in the Garden of Eden. But his seemingly unencumbered reign only lasts so long. His freedom to spew lies seems to, to supposedly come to an end pretty quick because the verse for today that we're going to focus in on is Genesis 3, verse 15, where God speaks the fate over the serpent where he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The day is coming when Satan will be defeated and removed from this earth forever. And this is the first promise. The first promise of his destruction. The offspring of this woman will crush you. Jesus will come. Jesus will walk the earth. And Jesus will ultimately be the one to crush Satan. In Colossians 2, it's summed up again, the record of debt that stood against us, he, Jesus, set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ's actions have disarmed Satan. They've taken away the only weapon that he has, which is to accuse us before our Father in heaven to convince God that we are guilty, that we are undeserving of his love so that we can perish with him. But in Christ, in Christ that accusation is rendered obsolete, it's rendered useless. Satan cannot separate us and the rest of the faithful followers from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8 tells us that, it convinces us, it assures us, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Your faith is what makes you well. But then herein lies the problem. Because we can all get behind the idea that Jesus beats the devil, right? You don't have to answer, you just have to nod. Yes? Yeah, oh, okay, Vicky doesn't care. Yes, all right? We can agree, Jesus beats the devil. The problem is how. How does he defeat the devil? And this is where we may be put at a bit of a disadvantage because for an Israelite, they read this and they read, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. They read that last line of Genesis 3.15 and they're like, man, this is a battle right here. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do you notice an issue with that though? Why is Satan's strike 
last. So that's the problem I ran into. And I have to think that as the Israelites read this, maybe they thought, okay, it was recorded in the wrong order. Maybe someone was speaking poetically here. Because really, Jesus should have the last move, right? How many of you have ever crushed something before? Yeah, maybe a nut. I don't know. When you crushed that nut, was it able to go on? No, it's crushed. It's done. So why is Satan able to continue to move forward? Why is Satan able to continue to attack? How it should read is you will strike his heel, and then he will crush your head. We should be able to flip Scripture around, and in the next slide it shows us that. It'll catch up. So as we continue to look at these things, this is how we hope the order is going to be. This is how we look for the order to look like. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. This is Jesus winning. This is Jesus defeating everybody. But it doesn't. It doesn't fit like that. Jesus didn't operate like that. Jesus didn't do it that way. Those who were closest to Jesus, they read a passage like this in its, in its normal sense where he will crush your head and he will strike your heel. And they thought of it as a battle. They thought of Jesus as a warrior, a ruler, a king. He was supposed to come in and destroy everything that was wrong in this world. He was supposed to destroy the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Samaritans, all of these jerks around us so that we as the chosen people of God could be elevated to be his chosen people and live in paradise with him forever. But instead, he died. Was the Savior of the world supposed to die? That doesn't sound like winning. That doesn't sound like a victory. A winner doesn't die. A winner triumphs. A winner stands tall. How can you defeat something if you're dead? Jesus didn't fit into the paradigm of the people. And as we continue to look at him now and we continue to look back, we may think, well, obviously that's what had to happen but we still have people today who deny that that's the truth. We still have people today who can't accept that that's what it is. They, back then, were missing a key component, and the same thing now is being missed. You see, because the people of God thought, this is how God should work. God should be my little genie, my little secret weapon, my little wishing well. You know, we go to him and we say things like, oh, you know, I'll volunteer for Urban Base Camp, or I'll volunteer for any of these goals and strategies we just talked about, God, as long as you give me the car I want. You know, my car's fine, but I really want a better one. You know, and I'll volunteer. We want to earn it. We want to stack the deck, right? Or maybe you're having a bad day, you know? Something, you sent the wrong email to the wrong person, and you're like, okay, God, I will never look at that kind of website again. I'll never look at porn again as long as you, you just, you make that email get lost, all right? I don't want them to find out about who I am. Or maybe you just ignored God for decades, and you come to a point where, where you have cancer and you're praying for the first time in many, 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 many years. You're saying, God, I know I haven't really been the best, but, but if you take this cancer from me, I will be in church every week from here on out. We treat God like he fits into our little box. But God doesn't operate that way. God doesn't function that way. Most often, when, when we pray and ask God for something, we think, well, I asked for it in Jesus' name, so I should get it, right? People may even throw that in your face. I asked God to save my grandma, and I said it in Jesus' name. Why is she dead? 
Did you really ask for it in Jesus' name? Or did you just tag Jesus' name onto your sinful request? Is what was best for God's plan that she stay? Or did you just really want it? We struggle with how God operates because it doesn't always fit how we want. It doesn't always fit how we understand. And Satan knows that. And Satan uses that. And Satan tries to convince you that, well, God's not operating how you thought. Is he really there? Can he even do that? Can he heal your friend? Can he heal that child? Or maybe the problem's not God. Maybe the problem's you. Do you really have enough faith? Do you really know what this God thing is all about? Satan will do anything he can to try to attack you, and that's where Genesis 3.15 is true. Because Jesus has come. Jesus has walked on this earth. Jesus has died, but Jesus has risen again. He has crushed the head of Satan. But now Satan is striking back, and Satan can no longer hurt the head, so Satan's going after the body. Satan's going after us. It's not the heel of Jesus that is being struck. It's us. We are that heel. Can you imagine that? We are the heel. That's what Satan is doing. He's turned his attention away from the Father, away from becoming God, and to destroying God's creation. That's why it's written in the way it is. But, but why? Because Satan is the worst, right? The absolute worst. The worst of the worst. And what happens in our culture to the worst of the worst? Or what's supposed to happen in our culture? You know, we look at all different things. I'm a big fan of Batman. But you know what Batman's entire storyline is based on? Vengeance. All right? The bad people get what they deserve. You watch How the Grinch Stole Christmas. All right? I don't know how y'all equate in that movie. Um, I don't really see the Grinch as the bad guy. Maybe you don't either. And when little Cindy Lou Who comes up to the Grinch in the Jim Carrey version, the good version, uh, and asks, what's the meaning of Christmas? He's like, vengeance! That's what our culture says. How many of y'all watch Blue Bloods or Law and Order or 911 or any of those, like, CSI crime shows? The bad guys get what they're supposed to get. Karma is king. Just desserts received. But that's not always how God works. In fact, often, it seems like God doesn't work that way. We want Satan to have just been wiped out. I mean, his story is he was entrusted to be the number two to God, the angel of light, the angel of music, the most beautiful being apart from God himself. And yet he chose to try to overthrow God and was punished. God's holy presence in Jude 1 verse 6 it summed up for us what happened to Satan. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. But why is God waiting? Why not just destroy him now? Why not just allow us to experience the awesomeness that is his glory right here, right now, forever and ever? Well, we find the answer in Colossians 1.16, where it says, all things have been created through him and for him. And that him is not Satan, that him is Jesus, the snake crusher, 
the one who would come to live among us, the one whose glory could not be realized except through long-suffering, patience, humility, servanthood, and death, rather than through raw power. And the more highly honored the Son is, the greater the joy of those who love Him will be. Our joy is made great in the glory of Jesus because we are connected with Him. Could Jesus have just slammed Satan into the ground and called it done? Yeah, it totally could have. But the glory of Christ reaches its apex as Christ goes to the cross, as He sacrifices Himself for each and every one of us and declares His victory over Satan. We are already living in a war that has been won. We may fight little battles here and there, but ultimately our destiny is with Jesus forever. We are no longer trapped under the weight of sin. But until that day when Jesus returns, there are so many people who continue to doubt, who who the devil has turned his attention to and has convinced that God is not worth their time. And so what Jesus is doing is allowing us the opportunity to know who he is and to share that with as many people as possible so that everyone can see this glory. Jesus knew his glory would take time to be realized. He told it to the disciples in John 13 where he says, now in this final hour is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Paul recognized it and even pointed out the difficulty that people would have in accepting it, but we preach Christ crucified. This is 1 Corinthians. But it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And finally, Christ shared directly with Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When you struggle, Christ is glorified. In your darkest moments, Christ's light is able to shine through. Christ is the hero we need. He may not always be the hero we want. He may not always be the savior you expect, but he is exactly what we need in order to defeat Satan and also to make sure as many people as possible see that same image, that Christ has died, but even more so, Christ has risen. In the end, Satan and all the pain and suffering and brokenness that he causes, it just serves to magnify the glory of Jesus the wisdom of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the grace, the mercy, and the patience of Jesus, and even the wrath of Jesus when he comes again. We would not know him in fullness if it weren't for the pain we experience. Because without that pain, without that realization that we need something more, all it would have been is, Satan's done, cool. All of you lose your free will, you love me forever. That's not love. That's robotic. God wanted you to truly love him. And so his way to crush Satan was through his death on the cross, to show you how much he loves you so that you would know by loving him, everything's been completed. Everything has been fulfilled. So you may not fully understand what's going on or why it's happening in this way, but what you can grab hold of is that God does nothing out of vain conceit. He does everything for your good. He loves you. He's proven it to you. And in all things, will continue to love you through all that you do. Your suffering today is only temporary. It's very real, but it's very temporary. One day, And we look forward to that day. Jesus will come, 
and we will forever live with Him in His eternal glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank You so much that You sent Your Son to us, that You have filled us with Your grace, Your peace, Your mercy, and Your love, and that, Lord, You continue to operate even when we get frustrated with what You're doing, even when we doubt what You're doing, even when we tell You we want something different, we want something better, we want something that You don't want for us. God, we just ask You to help us see Your plan in our lives. We ask You to help us see the love that You have for us and to trust that no matter what it is in this world, Lord, You have a better plan. You have a greater plan, and You will carry us forward until that day You return. We love You, Lord, and we trust in You above all things. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.